0: Lord, thank you for this night, thank you for uh, the chance to get together, um, thank you for your word and the just immense blessing it is to open it and to have you speak to us from it, and we just ask that you do that tonight, that you would give us ears to hear you and hearts to receive you, eyes to see you here in your word, um, and that you would not let me get in the way of any of that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. We are in the middle of a series, uh, No Lasting City, where we're walking through uh, chapters 3 through 11. Of Genesis, and we're kind of doing two things. We're tracing out the fallout of the fall. We're seeing how things got broke, what things got broken, how broken are they, how has the fall infected all these different areas of human life, um, in the city of man that we live in, this no-lasting city. But we've also been tracing this other storyline that's going alongside of the ruin, is what we've been calling it, and it's God's remnant. This little thread of hope that's been in every story thus far, we've not put it there, we've not tried to put a silver lining on a cloud, but we've actually found that God, right alongside all this ruin, is working to redeem something. We're not totally sure even yet, he just continues to show up with grace and with mercy and instill hope. And so, tonight we're going to continue looking at those two kind of parallels, but I want to start by just giving you six qualities, six markers of a culture. And I have a specific culture in mind. I'm going to tell you what it is. I want you to listen to these. And as you hear them read, I want you to try to guess the culture that I have in mind. So here they are. These are six qualities of a culture. Rootless wandering. Increased urbanization. So like the increasing building of cities. A distorted view of marriage. Great advancement in technology and agriculture in the arts, a low view of humanity, and self-idolatry. I don't know if that sounds like any culture you might know. What we find in chapter 4, the remaining part of chapter 4 that we've not looked at yet, after Cain's killing of Abel, is a list of Cain's descendants and details of the kind of city, the kind of culture that they forge together. And what becomes apparent is that this is its own kind of perverse and twisted fulfillment of the mandate that Adam and Eve had received from God in the garden before the fall. God had told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it all. Cain and his descendants actually fulfill that mandate. But they do so in the only way they can as those dwelling in the city of man, as people themselves shot through with the ruin of the fall. They do so in a way where ruin pervades all they touch. Everything they do, everything they build, ruin pervades it. And not only that, but they use what they build to perpetuate the ruin even further. And so if it's not clear at this point, that's the culture I have in mind. This list of cultural characteristics are actually from the verses we're going to look at in chapter 4. And yet, even if you didn't know that they came from there, I'm guessing they sounded familiar. I'm guessing you didn't think of maybe a Bible culture or even another country's culture. I'm guessing you thought maybe at least partly of our culture, of the United States. And I'm glad you did because that's what I want you to see tonight is that the six characteristics of the culture that Cain and his descendants build are true of every human culture everywhere in the world. Human cultures are distinct. They're very different. I mean, you travel to Uganda from here, it's different. You travel from Uganda to China, unbelievably different. And yet all humans are affected by the fall and live in the same city of man. The ruin pervades all of us. So wherever we carry human civilization, despite the vast variances between specific cultures, at the bottom of all human cultures are these six ruinous characteristics. Go study any culture on the planet. Find two you think are the most far apart possible in humanity. And at the bottom of each of those will be these six things, just spelled out and looking maybe a little different. And if this is a series about knowing where we find ourselves in the city of man, the city that does not last, of knowing it better so that we can live more faithfully in it, we should familiarize ourselves with these six characteristics. So we know our bearings, we know where we're living. So turn with me to Genesis 4, verse 16. We left off last time with Cain having killed Abel and been banished. And we're going to pick up right there in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Our first marker is rootless wandering. God told Cain back in verse 12 that he would be a wanderer on the earth. And now we see that this has come true. The place where Cain settled, ironically, is the land of Nod, which literally means wandering. So Cain settles in the land of wandering. What we find in all places on the planet where humans settle, even when the place is not named that exact thing like it is here, is that all humans are wandering. Every human is wandering because every human's home is Eden, and none of us can be, get back there. And so every place we do find ourselves is a kind of wandering. It's a place of wandering. It's its own nod. God's intention was for Eden to spread and spread and spread and to encompass the whole earth. But with humanity's banishment from Eden, what has now occurred is that what spreads and spreads and spreads and covers the whole earth is not Eden, but cities of ruin, cities of wandering. Every city you've ever lived in, literal ones and civilizations, huge countries and empires, every place humans find themselves living is a place of wandering. It is their best attempt to find Eden again, whether they're aware of it or not. It is to locate again and to dwell in the solidity of the shalom of Eden with God. And this is why every city crumbles. This is why every civilization crumbles, even the ones that remain. Every civilization begins to crumble, if not gets completely wiped from human history. Because every civilization, no matter how sturdy seeming, is a place of wandering. No civilization within the city of man will ever be marked by solidity and rudeness. Even in their setting up of camp and building incredible cities, humans are wanderers at the bottom because our home is Eden where there was untainted communion with God, and that is a place we cannot get back to. And so until Christ returns and sets up the new heavens and the new earth, and when Eden is finally here again, until then, we will wander. We will be rootless. And a lot of us, especially this phase in life, maybe feel that very, very intensely. Number two, increased urbanization. This is verse 17. Cain knew his wife, which we're young adults, it's fine, he's had sex with his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, <clears throat> Enoch. Cain builds a city, a collection of houses and shops to preserve life. Nothing necessarily wrong with that at all. That's fine. In fact, one of the most impressive things humans ever do are the cities that we build. We are capable of building incredible, incredible cities. Look at the ancient ones in the ruins. We're impressed. We're like, oh my goodness, how do they even do this? And look at the modern ones like Dubai. It's incredible what humans can do. We can accomplish incredible feats. But cities do come with a host of problems you don't have otherwise. There's greater demand and need for water and sources of food those being the most important problems. Usually disease is more easily spread within cities and sanitation is harder to maintain. But those are just realities of people living around each other. There's nothing evil about cities. Cities are not wicked in and of themselves. You shouldn't point the finger at Phoenix and be like, ha wicked people. And yet the Bible does cast cities in a strange light. Usually cities tend to carry a more sinister Meaning. And the reason is because their whole existence is due to the darkness of life within the city of man. At this time, what made a city a city was a wall. And a wall has two purposes, to keep things in and to keep things out. In their keeping things in, cities demonstrate a human desire to hoard and to keep and to accumulate. Cities, particularly in the Old Testament, are necessarily self-centered. They are about their own survival. Who cares about the other cities? We don't live in those. We live in this city. Who cares if that one burns down and goes away? Our city is the one that matters, and so we must collect. We must hoard. We must not let anyone leave, because strength is in numbers. Human hopes, often, are foundationally placed in accumulation and strength in numbers. Even one of the guys we're going to read later on in this passage, his name is Irad, or Irid, and his name means fleet. And I think the idea is they're like a fleet of ships. The idea is strength in numbers, we're growing. Cities keep things in because of a human fear of wasting away. And so it perpetuates a selfishness, a hoarding, surviving at the cost of other people's lives if that's what it means. In their desire to keep things out, cities are also pointers to this baseline human fear that exists in all of us. When Cain receives his punishment of exile, his great fear is that someone is going to find him and kill him. And God tells him, no way. I'm going to give you a mark. I'm going to protect you. I'll curse that person, whoever would kill Cain. And yet what does Cain do? He invents cities What makes a city a city? Walls. Cain is still dreadfully afraid that someone is going to kill him. And so he builds a wall around his collection of homes so that no one can do that, so that no one can come against him. And so in their keeping of things out, cities point to a fear of other humans, of a lack of trust and a fear that someone else is out to get us. And so cities point to ugly aspects of the human heart ruined as it is by the city of man. The selfish desire to survive whatever that may mean for others outside of our city and a deep-seated fear of other humans. We may not share those exact things because we don't live in cities with walls necessarily, but those two things, accumulation and fear of others, are definitely things that exist in the human heart still today. Number three, and this is the big long one, so stick with me the distortion or the twisting of marriage. Read verses 18 through 19 with me. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech had two wives. After speeding through the first descendants of Cain, we get to a man named Lamech, which means powerful. And here the author slows down and zooms in on Lamech and on his descendants. The rest of the passage mainly that we're going to look at will be a looking closely at Lamech's descendants. In fact, Lamech gets more airtime, even without the Abel story. You take the Abel story out, Lamech gets more airtime than Cain. And I'm sure you've never heard of, probably heard of Lamech. You can't, you know, you might read this story and you say, oh, Lamech. But if you just say Lamech out in public, you're like, who's Lamech? But if you say Cain, People know who Cain is. Cain and Abel. But Lamech gets more airtime. More is said about him. He gets more detail. And the reason is because Lamech is supposed to be the quintessential society leader. He is the embodiment of a human society leader, at least as it exists at this time, as we'll see in a moment. With Lamech, we will see human civilization really begin to take shape in the form that it continues to have today. And the first thing we learn about Lamech, besides that his dad is Methuselah, is that he took two wives. Now, why does the reader need to know that? Because this is the first instance of bigamy or of marrying more than one person in human history. And I think it's supposed to shock the reader. You're just reading along the genealogy of Enoch fathered Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and what you expect to read next is, and Lamech fathered so-and-so, because that's how genealogies work. They continue on and on and on until they stop and just start with a new story, but that's not what happens here. It goes through the list of his predecessors, but when it gets to Lamech, instead of reading Methushael fathered Lamech and Lamech's father anybody, it's, and Lamech took two wives. You're reading in a cadenced rhythm, expecting to go on, and instead you are just given the statement, and Lamech took two wives. If this was a movie, there'd be the record scratch, like, because something's wrong. It doesn't fit. It doesn't follow the passage and it doesn't fit the vision of marriage that God has just given us two chapters ago to Adam and Eve. And the author wants us to see it. This is not just a little cute fact about Lamech. Something horrendous has gone on. God's vision for marriage was that a man would leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The idea is that a man will have one bride that he will wrap both arms around and hold without regard to anyone else. And even post-fall, that's what happens. Adam and Eve remain together, and all the descendants through six generations, even post-fall, they don't marry other women. They marry one person. Until one day, Lamech has an idea, why don't I take a second wife? Lamech took the most sacred things, that, one of the most sacred things that human beings have been given in all of creation and utterly distorted it. And every human culture has been doing the same thing with marriage in their own ways, with our culture probably leading best in show. And so marriage, at least as far as the God who designed it and created it is concerned, is distorted. And here's why that's so Painful regardless of whatever culture it happens in, regardless of whatever form it takes on. Because as we learn throughout the rest of Scripture, there's a point to marriage. There's a reason for marriage. Marriage was invented to demonstrate something else. And that something else is Yahweh, is God's relationship with his covenant people. God wanted to put his relationship with his covenant people on display for all the world to see. And so he said, How can I do that? I'll create a thing called marriage. That's how I'll do that. And so, anytime marriage is distorted, whether through adding in more than two people, or the wrong genders of the two people, or through abuse or neglect, or through unfaithfulness, whether that's with another person or through a phone screen. It is not just another human institution being damaged. That really stinks. What makes those things so horrific, why they feel even so unbelievably horrific, is because the tangible picture of God's relationship with his people is lost. We lose the one place we can look to in all of creation to see on a human level what God's relationship with his covenant people looks like. One God, one bride, and any finicking with any human ele- or equivalent, uh, sorry, any finicking with that and any human equivalent and the entire picture goes. That is what, why we need to know and Lamech took two wives because this is an utter travesty. And it's not just an utter travesty because, oh, we lose marriage and there's like a big theological reason for why that's bad. It has practical, devastating outworkings. You read throughout the Bible at the distortion of marriage, particularly in the Old Testament, and you do not have to read far to see the distortion and the effects that it has on real life people. Go read the story of Jacob marrying Leah and Rachel, and just spend some time there. It's one of the less horrific, and yet they have a baby war for the love of Jacob, and it's utterly heartbreaking. But we also see it here in this passage. Look at, verses 19 and, or look at verse 19 and then the end of verse 22 with me. So, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. And now look at the end of verse 22. The sister, and this is still Lamech's daughter, the sister of Tubal-Cain was named Neymah. Now, names are extremely important in the Old Testament. They speak to the core identity of who this person is. Speaking of Jacob again, he's named trickster basically, and it's because throughout his life he's a liar, he's a trickster. Names go hand in hand with who that person typically is. They get to the person's core identity in some way. And so we should always be asking, does this name tell me anything? Like, is this an important name? But that is especially the case when we are given the names of those we should not be getting. Sometimes the author, like he has here, gives us names of people that we don't really need to know their names. And so when that happens, especially we need to ask, why does the author care that I know who this name is. And there's really no reason for us to know Lamech's wife's names. We could have just been told that Lamech took two wives and these are their sons, but instead the author takes the time to let us know what their names are. And even more surprising, he tells us Lamech's daughter's name. You definitely don't hardly ever read daughter's names in the Old Testament genealogies. And for seemingly no reason we're told their names. Why? I think it's because the author is pointing to something in their names that reveals something about the state of women post-fall. And the reason I think that is because there are no other women mentioned in the genealogies in Genesis that I've been able to find. At least up to chapter 20, anytime you read a genealogy, never get a woman. Not even in like the ones we care about, like Adam's line, we're not told, ever, ever a woman besides Eve. Not only that, but there's not another woman named in Genesis 1 through 11 besides Eve and these three women. Not a single woman's name. We need to know Lamech's wife's names and her daughter's names. We're not told Noah's wife's name. We're not told Cain's wife's name. We're not told of Noah's son's names. Why in the world do I need to know Lamech's wife's names when after this bit, we don't hear about this line really again? I think it's because their names are yelling something at us about the state of women in a post-fall world. So let's look at what their names are. The first one is Adah. Her name means ornament. Sounds kind of nice. But when you think about what an ornament is, an ornament has no use in and of itself. A un- an ornament's decoration. An ornament is meant for something else. And so she's an ornament for Lamech. She's an object, something like a charm or a bracelet or a trophy that Lamech can show off. Just like in our culture, at Christmas, the main thing is the tree. Now the ornaments help that tree look beautiful. But if you don't got the tree, who cares about the ornaments? And I think the same thing is going on here. Ada's existence is inextricably tied to Lamech's, but Lamech's is not to Ada. And I know Lamech didn't name Ada, he doesn't name his wife, but I think the author of, author of Genesis knew her name and thought it fits exactly what a relationship with Lamech is like and also what women experience in the post fall world. But that's just one. Maybe the other ones don't match up. But let's look at Zillah. Zilla's name means shade, and that seems innocent enough, but shade does not shade itself. It shades another. The whole point of shade is to protect something from the sun. And the things that cast shade aren't the things that get protected. The things that cast shade are left out in the open to experience the brutality of the heat, while the things under it get the comforting shade and the coolness. And so Zalah is shade for Lamech in some way. And so I think at least, because I think there's got to be a reason we're told her name, Zalah points to the fact that more often than not, in the city of man, in the cultures we create, women find their worth and their value in the comfort of men. Too often than not, that is how it goes. Not men giving themselves for women, but women existing solely for the comfort of men. And then finally, there's Nemah, the most surprising name we're given. We should not be told Wemek of all people's daughter's name. And to be fair, her name is really beautiful. It literally means loveliness. So that was kind of an ironic joke. Now that's nice to be called beautiful, to be called in the Hebrew literally loveliness but the word has a specific kind of loveliness in mind. It's not a holistic inner and outer loveliness. We kind of think of loveliness meaning that like a full scale, like whole person, they're lovely. This is a purely physical loveliness. It's purely about what she looks like. And again, having the name loveliness in and of itself is kind of nice even if it is the physical sweet or physical loveliness. That's still kind of a beautiful name But in a culture where your name is your core identity, we have to ask what does that say about Nehemiah and also about the women who follow after her. And I think it reveals to us how not only have women been seen and often are still seen as charms for men, as comfort for men, as existing for those purposes, but they are also viewed almost exclusively in terms of their physical appearance. Her name means physical loveliness, and like the case of most women after her, it's because that's the only thing that really matters about Nama. Even her brothers who are mentioned were told in a minute all they accomplished, all the things that they create. We're just told, and Cain's sister was loveliness. I think it speaks to you. there's nothing more about her, but just that she's lovely. Because in the post-fall world, women, more often than not, are the ones who receive the brunt of the sin that pervades all of creation. So, I think that's why, and you're free to disagree. You'd be like, Zach, that is making way too much of names. I just would ask, why do we get these names? Help me out, because I'm truly perplexed. I think this is why. Because in the author's own way, he's pointing to the fact of how women are all too often reefed by the fall, and by the hands of men. So, Those are the downstream effects, I believe, of the distortion of marriage. Why not take two wives? Who cares? I can do what I want. And I think it spells ruin and ruin and ruin for women by and large. So let's move on. Number four, advancement in technology, agriculture, and the arts. Look at verse 20 through 22 again with me. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So there's a movement from where Abel is just having sheep and goats. Now we have livestock. We have cows, cattle, like all this stuff. There's a growth in agriculture. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. So we've got music, art is being created in this society. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. That's kind of self-explanatory. Technology, tools are advancing. Like cities, these advancements are not evil in themselves. These point to the fact that even in a post-fall, ruinous culture, humans still bear the image of God and are capable of incredible things. Inca- in- capable of creating incredible things, of doing th- incredible things, of building incredible things. And yet, just like with cities, these good things are often co opted and used for wicked ends. And that's what we exactly see later on in this passage. Look at verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zelah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech boasts of killing. Lamech's a murderer, and he sings about it. He doesn't write a history of it. He writes a song about it. His son has created some instruments, maybe created song, and Lamech's like, this is a great avenue for me to sing of my praise. Like, let's sing about how I murder people. And so Lamech takes this beautiful thing of art. And what does he do with it? He turns and twists it toward evil, wicked ends. He takes song, he takes poetry, and uses it to sing about his murder of other image bearers. And so this points to the fact that in human cultures, even the amazing, incredible, good things we do, far too often, we then take and use for ill ends. Bronze and iron, anybody? Like, what's that going to be used for? (laughs) Killing, murder, war, everything we create. The most advanced century in the world, the 20th century in human history, the most killing in human history combined. That's what humanity does with the things we create. Which gets us to number five. We're kind of bleeding into number five here. A low view of humanity leading to its destruction. This is verse 23, which you've already read, where Lamech sings, praises his killing of other people. Fifteen verses ago, we witnessed the first murder of an image of God at the hands of Cain, and we felt the horror of it that ruin had spread that far where a brother would kill his brother. And now, after only a few generations, Cain's great-great-great-grandson kills and then gloats about it. He's proud of it. Human life has lost its value in the city of man. Images of God are tossed out and eliminated like they're nothing. Nothing. You would think that in a city founded on the love of humanity, the city of man after all, that humanity would be lifted up and valued above all else, but that is not the case. In fact, the opposite is true. Other humans are seen as threats to be subdued or objects to be used. When God is lost, with him goes humanity's understanding of itself as his image bearers. And once that is out the window, there is no basis for valuing human life at all. You're just a threat. And when there's no valuing of human life, you can be sure of its willful destruction at its own hands. And so in a city founded on the rejection of God, the devaluing of that God's images is one of the most felt realities Whether it takes the form of literal killing as it does here or the just mistreatment of other humans or slavery or sex trafficking or abuse in our homes, humanity has lost its sense of its own worth by making itself preeminent. What a paradox. And the result is the destruction of humans by humans. And rather than the horror over that fact, we all too often celebrate it by and large. As humans, the final marker of the city of man is also the basis for all the others. It kind of is what sits at the bottom of them all, and it's self-idolatry. It's here that we see the seed that gives birth to all these other forms of distortion within every human heart, and this is in verse twenty-four. Still within, or sorry, Lamech's song. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. Now, when I first read that, I thought he was saying that Lamech's revenge is greater than Cain's revenge. But then I was like, Cain doesn't take revenge on anybody. Cain doesn't even want to take revenge on anybody. Cain is afraid of being killed, so that can't be what it's about. And then I was like, sevenfold. Where have I seen sevenfold before? Back in Cain's story. This is verses 14 and 15 of Cain's killing of Abel. This is Cain speaking at first. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Lamech is not saying that his revenge will be greater than Cain's. Lamech is saying that his revenge would be greater than God's. God promises Cain, if anyone touches you, if anyone kills you, I will Yahweh, the God of the universe, will avenge you sevenfold. When Lamech sings about the revenge, he will take on people. He knows that story of Cain and says, if God was going to do sevenfold for Cain, I'm going to do 77. This is utter, sheer blasphemous idolatry. God is the one that will take revenge for Cain. And his is the one, his revenge is the one that's sevenfold. So when Lamech says that his is 77-fold, he is saying he is capable of doing something far more powerful than God. God just does a measly sevenfold, man. I'm worth 77-fold. If anyone comes at me, God might have done sevenfold for Cain, but I'm gonna do 77-fold for myself. This idea of 77-fold, it's a play on the sevenfold, it is the idea of times to get by 11. It is over the top. It is extravagant. It's one reason why we're not even sure the guys he's bragging about killing here actually struck him physically. He says, an old man wounded me, a young man struck me. We're not even sure that they physically did or if his pride was wounded, if they like tried to usurp power from him. Commentators aren't sure. It's possible his pride was just ruined and he's saying, I'm going to give 77-fold vengeance even to that because Lamech is so full of himself. He sees himself. He's powerful. That's his name. And so he believes he is capable of doing something far more powerful than Yahweh. Unless we think that uh, Lamech is special in his waywardness, This seed of self-idolatry, of self-love, where we consider ourselves greater than God himself, capable of things, God himself does not even say he will do. It's the same seed found in Adam and Eve. It's the reason Adam adds extra laws that we talked about. Because he doesn't think God's laws are enough, so he needs to do more. It's the reason Eve eats of the fruit. Because God told her not to, but it does look good for the taking. At the heart of every human being is a seed of self-idolatry that says, I can be God. I can be greater. We may not think it so explicitly. We may not write a song about it because we're not that stupid. But we have the sneaking thoughts. We have the sneaking suspicion. God says this, but I just know if I try hard. God says this, but really what's wrong with that? We believe we are gods. We are our own Lamechs. We believe we are powerful. These are the ruinous cultural characteristics of every human culture tainted by the city of man. And it pervades every civilization wherever you look on all the earth. They're true of our own culture and every other one too. Whatever we seek to do and build is infected by the ruin within us. And so when we build, we typically perpetuate that very ruin when we set up societies. The ruin of the city of man permeates literal cities that man makes. Which feels pretty hopeless to me. That we're bound to just perpetuate our own ruin. Ruin. That whatever we build, someone's going to take and misuse. That whatever we build will crumble. That whatever we do is not going to last, no matter how amazing. And the situation, to me, feels all the more hopeless. Because at this point, there's no other human line. At this point in Genesis, we come to the Bible, most of us, knowing a little bit more of the story. If you're reading this for the first time, these are all the humans there are. As far as we know in this story, it's Cain, his line that's led to Lamech, and this is it. This is the human culture. This is the line. This is the one we will be descendants of. But then there's a verse, right after verse 24, where not everything is as it seems. Lamech's civilization and his line is apparently not the only one on the market. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Inosh. chapter 4 closes with the founding of another city, another civilization, really another family line that's going to create cities just like the one that we've been talking about so far. Adam and Eve, in the wake of losing their son Abel, have another son. Now we're not told if that was way back like right after it happened or six generations because people lived this long. Maybe Adam and Eve haven't had another child this whole time. And so around the time of Lamech this happens, and that's why we're told here, we aren't sure. But we do know they have another son, and that his name is Seth. Seth sounds like the word for appointed, which is why Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring. Where Eve once said, I have gotten, remember Cain's name is gotten, where she once said, I have gotten out of pride, she now says, God has. Has appointed Seth's name, where I have cained, God has Seth. So even here we see this transforming remnant within Eve. But that's not that's just that's for free. That's not the main thing. The main thing is where the word Seth has already shown up in Genesis. The Hebrew word for appointed, which is Seth's name, is the exact same word used in Genesis 3.15 when God says to the serpent, I will put, or you could translate it, I will appoint enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. I will appoint, I will seth enmity between you serpent and this woman's offspring. And so Seth's very name is the pointer back to the promise that one of Eve's children is going to be the offspring. And it doesn't seem to be Cain because he took his brother's life. But God has appointed for Eve another. God has Seth for Eve another. And this Seth is the very one or at least his line will perpetuate the very one who will do what God promises to the serpent, and to Eve, back in Genesis 3. Enmity will exist between these two lines, the serpent's line and Eve's line, through Seth. And one day, one of Seth's line will crush the serpent's head for good. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. With Seth, a new line begins. And this line's central identity, because of his name, is that they will have enmity with the serpent. They will do war with him. This is the line that even though the serpent's venom still courses through this line's vein, just like Cain's line, they're all humans, they will war against that serpent and the venom in their veins. Now we're going to look at Seth's line next week in more detail. And the reason is because the author of Genesis, in the next verse, chapter 5, verse 1, begins to talk about Adam's line through Seth, which to me raises the question, well, why did he give us this spoiler alert already? If he's going to tell us in two verses, Adam had another kid named Seth, and then go through the family line, why does he tell me here? He begins the genealogy. Adam and Eve had Seth, Seth had Enosh, and then just cuts it off. And then three verses later in chapter 5, he's going to pick it back up and say the exact same thing again. Why do I need to know it twice? I think it's because the author does not want it to get lost in the sauce, what Seth's name is, and that a new line that's in competition to Cain's line has been made. And so he inserts at the end of Cain's line this story, but there's another line and we're going to go into detail what that line is but i need you to see clearly there's another line that is not only that, that is running parallel and in contrast to this horrific line we just read about in these two sons Cain and Seth and their descendants we have the symbolic representation of the two cities And the author wants to draw our mind explicitly to this before he gets into the longer genealogy of Adam through Seth where it might get lost. And to be clear, Seth's line is still a part of the city of man. Every human being is. They live within the city that does not last even while they seek the city of God. That is the paradox of being a part of both cities. Even those who have been brought into the city of God remain in the city of man. They don't get floated up to heaven away from the earth in the city of man here. They don't go off into the woods and just build like a separate society away from the city of man because the city of man can't be escaped that way. The city of man exists within us. It's a spiritual city of man, not a literal locale. So even if you were to go start a society and be a weird cult person, you're not escaping the city of man. It's in you, even as a person who's been brought into the city of God but they have been made parts of the city of God. This is this paradox of the people of God living in the city of man, but being brought into the city of God. And so the question happens, how does that happen? The question becomes, how does that happen? Or better question maybe is, if everyone lives in the city of man until they die, but some become citizens also of the city of God, how do we mark out who is who? How do I know what line I'm in? Seth's or Cain's? How do I know? Well, the author tells us in the part of verse 26 that I've not read yet. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. For those who don't know, when you read all caps L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, it's our English way of just presenting the really holy personal name of Yahweh. But we believe we should say that. So we should read it. At that time, at the institution of Seth's line, not before apparently, but at this time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. So the question is, well, what does it mean to call upon? Does that just mean to yell out, Yahweh? Is that how you call upon the name of Yahweh? No. So what is it? We need to know. If we're going to know, if we're part of this line, where people call upon the name of Yahweh, we need to know what does that mean. To call upon a God is to worship him. But it isn't just an inner, you know, to-yourself, calling on him. It is a public, outward, viewable, full-life expression that others are aware of. The author is telling us that at this time, Seth and his descendants began to worship God. And not just in some far-off looking up into the skies, thinking there's a God, but not knowing who it is, but in a worshiping of the personal name of Yahweh. And so here is the dividing line between the two cities. Here is the marker between the line of Seth and the line of Cain. It's Yahweh worship. Which line are you a part? Which city are you a part of? Who do you worship? That is what divides the two lines, and apparently only that. This is the only defining marker that sticks it out, because Seth's line is going to be full of sin too. Just wait. But we're told here that at this time, people... Seth's people, apparently, began to worship Yahweh. And so this is the dividing marker. One city, the city of man, founded on the praise of man, founded on self-love, founded on humanity love, founded on seeking after humanity and gaining at all costs. The other city, founded on Yahweh worship founded on God, founded on looking and staring and longing and seeking and worshiping him. One city founded on its own image, the image of man. The other city founded on the image himself, Yahweh. These are the two cities. These are the two lines, Seth's and Cain's. And the people of God live in both this city of man and the city of God, being tainted and feeling the effects of the city of man while still living in the city of God via Yahweh worship. And so what do we do with all this information? I think one thing we do, and then I've got three questions I just want us to reflect on our discussion group tables. I think the thing we do is just like every week stand in amazement That God has not left us in the city of man with no hope. That he has instituted his own line. The reason Seth is born is not just so there's another people group, like another line you get to choose, you know, choose your character, which one would you rather be in. It's because Seth's line is going to produce the seed that will crush the serpent's head. Seth's line is the reason the city does not last because through Seth's line, Jesus will be born. Go read Luke's genealogy of Jesus. He goes all the way back and it says, Seth, who was fathered by Adam, we don't get Seth. I'm sure God could have worked it out. Of course he could have. But we do get Seth. We get the one appointed because he points to the one appointed, Jesus Christ, the appointed one, who will save and destroy the enemy and bring the city of man to no more and bring with him the city of God in its finality and its fullness where we will dwell with him forever. And so we should just stand in utter amazement of a God who would do all of that, what we could not do for ourselves. And then three things to reflect on. Who or what do you worship? And I mean in one sense, ultimately, do you worship the triune God? Do you worship Yahweh, Father, Son, Spirit? Have you called upon the only name by which we can be saved, Jesus Christ? Because if not, you are dead in Cain's line. But the offer is open to have the one appointed stand in your place so that you can be a part of the line that is destined for the city of God. And so, who do you worship? And then also, in a secondary sense, you may worship Yahweh, we do, but I worship different things every day. I'm like finding myself every moment almost of every day, realizing I'm giving worth. I'm giving praise to something else, whether it's myself or my kids or something, a situation. And so it's good to reflect, what am I actually worshiping? I know I worship Yahweh, but how is that worship being pulled in all these different directions? That relates to number two. Second thing, which of these six characteristics... Because again, this is our culture today, as much as it was in Lamech's day. Which of these six do you see in your own heart? Now, you probably don't see increased urbanization, but do you see the fears that are the cause for increased urbanization? I, I, need, to, I need to accumulate or I'm not going to be okay. Do I, I fear other people. Or is it self-idolatry? What of the six do you see in your heart? And then thirdly, how do you uproot those things? And again, these are things that we'll discuss, but also just as we go from this place, these are the questions of the Christian life that we continue to ask ourselves and grow in and experience grace when we recognize these things in our hearts. And then by the Spirit's help, we uproot them. So, I know that was a lot. Let's pray. We'll finish in worship and then go to discussion groups. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your love that covers us. We thank you. You've done for us what we could not do for ourselves in appointing um, Jesus Christ to do everything required to save us. So we ask that you'd help us as we praise you for that. Uh, It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.